The voice of Motown, West Virginia's leader in news, analysis, and rumors, proudly presents the Voice of Motown podcast, featuring your boys, Brandon and Tyler. Take it away, gentlemen. Welcome to today's podcast, February 28th, 2022. This is the Voice of Motown podcast. I'm Tyler Pepe. And I'm Brandon Cork, and this is a WVU sports podcast by two suffering WVU fans. All right, lots of topics to discuss today. WVU basketball, West Virginia transfers, John Flowers and Brad Smith, among many others, plus part five of our top 50 West Virginia football players of the 21st century. But before we get into all that, we want to remind all of you to follow our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Just look for the Voice of Motown podcast. And that is a separate account from Brad's Voice of Motown page. So make sure you search for both the Voice of Motown and the Voice of Motown podcast. Check out the content from both pages. Make sure you give each a follow and uh, send us your thoughts. And if you're feeling generous, uh, we have a link in our bio for our uh, podcast for donations as well, if you're feeling generous. So every little bit helps. Also, look for Brandon's articles on the Voice of Motown's website and social media accounts. And lastly, we greatly encourage everybody who's listening, reach out, tell us what you like, how can we improve on our podcast, because we're always trying to get better, so your opinion matters to us. So let's get into it. If you missed it over the weekend, John Flowers and our friend Brad Smith had a little feud, a spat, whatever you want to call it. Flowers announced a block party for the Voice of Morgantown Twitter account, and he wanted all of his followers to basically just block Brad's account during the Texas game. Um, I thought it would be over then, but then the comments by Flowers continued into Sunday, I saw. So, you know, this is normally stuff Brandon and myself stay out of. We normally don't engage in situations like this, but, um, you know, the whole thing seemed kind of petty to us, so we wanted to share some thoughts. So what are your thoughts on the situation, Brandon? Yeah, I think it's just kind of, um, you know, we've talked about it before, about the uneasiness of WVU fans during this rough patch. I mean, all the transfers, all the basketball, lo- losing bad performances and all that stuff. And, you know, everyone's kind of on edge. I mean, we see it with the basketball players um, and we see it with the fans, too. And I think you know, as content creators, which John Flowers is, um, you know, it's kind of hard to get engaging content whenever people aren't interested in that product. And I think, you know, kind of what he was doing was just jumping on the bandwagon of the voice of Motown hate. I mean, if you go on, you know, most social media pages, you'll see some negative comments about Brad and the voice of Motown. Um, you know, mostly it's kind of like Tyler said, petty, um, small stuff about, you know, clickbait things. And even though that every other site is using clickbait at this point in time, because that's a smart thing to do. But, you know, what, what that shows me uh, from someone like flowers who, you know, as a player, I respect it is kind of a lack of creativity for coming up with new engaging content. I mean, it's kind of small potatoes to go out and bully someone that people already kind of have a hate for. Um, And it just kind of seems soft and, you know, there's better ways to do it. I mean, um, flowers even tossed around the idea of having Brad on his podcast, which Twitter told him not to. Um, so he followed the leader there and then, um, you know, kind of behind closed doors. We even actually, I think, uh, 
it was on Twitter where we invited him to come on our podcast to talk, you know, just basketball. Or if you wanted to, you know, go back and forth on controversial ideas, we were happy to do that too. But uh, we got rejected on that one too. So, I mean, I think there's better ways to handle the whole situation and, you know, all the losing Uh, people don't like hearing the bad news, but it needs to be said. And Brad has no problem doing it. And if you want to come up with something more positive, something that me and Tyler are doing here is the top 50 Mountaineers of the 21st century lists. And, you know, other people can do be doing similar things. Yeah, I agree. You know, there's this mindset in today's culture that if, if you don't like something, then no one else should be able to read it or enjoy it. You know, my mindset has always been, if you don't like something, then just keep moving. Like it's not hurting anyone. Just stay in your own bubble. But, uh, it's just not how the world works anymore, it seems like. But Flowers made a comment that, you know, no one has anything nice to say about Brad. And listen, when Brandon and I started this podcast right before the Virginia Tech game this past season, we just did it as a fun thing to do. We're, we're both big WBU fans and we love talking about West Virginia sports. So we didn't really expect it to become anything big. Well, after a few podcasts, we started messaging people on social media saying we like their work and that we were big fans, just trying to make connections. And Brad messaged us back and wanted to work with us. And honestly, he was one of the few people who were even polite to us. Um, you know, we actually received a lot of, you know, nasty messages back for no reason. I mean, we haven't really said anything negative about anybody on the podcast. And um, he's been nothing but kind and generous to us ever since and he didn't know us anything he just did that because he liked what we did and wanted to work with us so he took a chance on us and I'll always have nice things to say about Brad Smith because of that so and I basically responded to John Flowers post saying exactly that and just because of that he he blocked us. <laughs> so <laughs> seems like a soft move, but whatever. Um, I have no ill will towards John Flowers. I enjoyed him when he played at West Virginia. If if he has beef with Brad, then that's between the two of them. I don't have a bad word to say about either guy. Yeah. I mean, you know, kind of my closing thought on it is that, you know, it kind of makes me lose respect a little bit for Flowers too, because of the way he handled it. I mean, it's kind of a childish thing. And I know Flowers has always kind of been one of those, fun guys who like to dance during games and stuff like that. So that's kind of part of his personality. But um, at the same time, you know, whenever you're part of the quote unquote media and you're influencing and you're sending messages out about, you know, other people in the media world, especially West Virginia sports media, you know, I think there's a better way to handle it. I mean, you, you don't really see feuds in professional sports TV. Like you don't see people on Fox sports bashing people on ESPN and going back and forth. This is, this isn't, the WWE, um, you know, maybe you'll see it from Mark Madden and Dayon Kovacevic in Pittsburgh sports media, but you don't want to be those guys. I mean, people, those guys are abrasive and um, you don't want to be grouped in with that type of thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's definitely with how big West Virginia's fan base is, there's room for different types of, you know, content creators. There's the people like Brad who report on everything, um, try to get the word out there about everything sometimes sensationalize some things there's other people out there who just kind of want to you know drive traffic to their company's website like the 24 sevens there's some people who just kind of do it for fun that are probably more like us like a uh, smoking musket and, and sites like that and then there's people who kind of 
bring a different perspective as former players, which is the final forecast and John flowers and things like that. And I think those work out and there's a lot of ability to kind of cross pollinate between all the different medias um, because everyone kind of brings their own perspective. And once you start burning those bridges, then you lose that ability to have the combined perspective across all the different expertises in the world. And as fans and listeners that they lose out, you know, it's not us that's losing out. We're still doing what we do. John's still doing what he does, but to get the full picture of everything that's going on, um, the fans lose out in the end. Yeah, I 100% agree. And um, it, it just seems like WVU Twitter and just social media is very clicky. It's almost like high school. Like if you're not in the cool crowd, then uh, they won't let you in. Like I said, we reached out to people early on doing the podcast. I even just messaged some journalists saying, hey, I like this report you did. Keep up the good work. And they blocked me. <laughs> And, and I mean, that's literally all I said, like, hey, man, great stuff. I like what you're doing. But just because our podcast says Voice of Motown, they just they just shut us down. It's very, very weird. I mean, whatever. If people want to act that way, like I said, I don't hold anything against them. But uh, I just don't understand why adults act that way sometimes. And we've also had, you know, very friendly people um, encouraging us who also do podcasts. And I'm kind of in the boat with them, like, um it, there's plenty of room to go around like unreasonable doubt that guy was very nice to us shared our interview i believe if it was the Derek culver interview and just said hey check these guys out and i reached out to him just thanking him so much like hey thanks you didn't have to do that and he had nothing but kind words to say that basically hey there's plenty to go around it's not like everyone just has to listen to my show like people can listen to all of our shows why not and I'm on board with him. I think there needs to be more guys out there like that. 100% agree. All right. So we're going to put that in the past and move on, guys. So we're going to discuss the last couple games um, since our last podcast. To recap, the West Virginia Mountaineers suffered two heartbreaking losses this past week. First, they fell to Iowa State 84-81, to and then they lost to Texas 82-81. to Um you know, these losses were especially painful because West Virginia had big second half leads in both of them, a 12 point second half lead against Iowa State and a 10 point second half lead against Texas. So what are your thoughts on those games? Yeah, it was really tough. I mean, kind of the story of the past few games where we pay, played a pretty good first half and then something happened in the second half that just bit us in the butt. I mean, Iowa State. Um, blew that double-digit lead, had a chance to take a lead late in the game, um, two chances actually, um, but couldn't get the ball in bounds and gave up that lead, um, and then just didn't get a good shot at the end of the game. Uh, same thing with Texas. You know, we had a chance with 11 seconds left to come down and score, and Curry would just barely missed. But I think the thing that people will overlook is the possession before that. Uh, WVU came down and the possession was so broken. Um, I messaged Tyler. I said, what are Gabe and Cottrell doing standing one foot away from each other on a low block? I don't know what type of offensive set that was. You know, it's just complete laziness. I don't know if they were lost. I don't know if there wasn't a play called. I don't know what the plan there was. But, you know, the, the offense, once again, kind of, even though it was clicking the past two games, finds a way to screw up at the end. Um, you know, that's not to mention the defense, which is kind of another point where 
the defense hasn't been great the past couple games, giving up over 80 points in both losses. But, you know, you need to be able to figure out a way to finish games. And that's something that, you know, Huggins has done pretty well over his career is figuring out a way to finish games. So I think, you know, some of it is more becoming more apparent that the players are just not able to kind of run the sets. They're not maybe not necessarily 100% listening or maybe it's an effort thing. It's hard to tell at this point, but I could see a lot of players being discouraged and it's easy to lose close games like this whenever you're playing tired and tired of losing. Sure. Yeah. I mean, without a doubt, all the losing does take a toll on your mindset and just physically, just your body. Like you're not up for it sometimes, but you kind of mentioned it. West Virginia's offensive production has gone up a lot. These last two games, they shot 46% versus Iowa state and 50% versus Texas compare that to their season average of 41 Um, but unfortunately their defense was lacking and they seemed to go cold on the offensive end at just, just the worst times it seemed like. So just very frustrating outcomes. Um, but much like winning, losing can become contagious. Some teams just always find a way to win, even when they have off nights, but after losing 13 of the last 14 games, we have transformed into a team that just always finds a way to lose. It seems like. Yeah. And it's easy to kind of nitpick at what's going on, but, you know, digging into the numbers a little bit over the past two games, it's kind of strange in how their shot distribution is set up. Um, So the past couple games, we've actually been better in the paint, but, you know, the thing that I've said numerous times over several episodes of this podcast is that WVU just takes bad shots a lot. I mean, um, in the past two games, they've taken 47 mid-range shots compared to 57 combined shots at the rim and, and for three. Um, and on those attempts, they're only shooting 38% on those mid-range shots. And they're shooting 56% in the past two games at the rim and at, from the rim and three-point attempts combined. So, you know, those close shots and the deep shots they're making at a high clip, but they're still settling at a really high percentage of their total shots. Almost 50% of their shots are coming from mid-range. And... When you're losing games by one or three or four points, you know, the difference that six inches can make on those mid-range shots between a long two and a three could be the difference in the game. And, you know, that's the one part of Huggins' game that I've always kind of scratched my head at is he's always kind of been okay with players who want to live in the mid-range. I mean, Deuce was great there. Um and he did a great job at it, but it seems like Sean McNeil and Taz like taking those shots too. And they don't exactly hit there at a high clip. So, you know, part of his coaching and part of my criticism of his offense coaching is that, you know, you need to teach these players to stop shooting these 20 foot jump shots and take a step back or drive to the rim and get a little bit closer because you're just hurting yourself and you're hurting the shooting percentages and you're leaving points on the board. Yeah, 100%. Plus, you know, getting the ball inside more these last few games has also led to a lot of fouls, which is great because you're putting the other team in foul trouble. And, you know, the big knock on West Virginia teams has always been they're they're bad at the line. But, you know, the the Mountaineers have been pretty good from the free throw line and Big 12 play, it seems like. So, 
yeah, the more you can get the ball inside, the better. Plus, if you start hitting some shots inside, the defense will sleep on you a little, and maybe you can kick it out and get some wide open threes, which we know Taz and McNeil can hit. Um, but yeah, it's it seems like they've been doing that all year, that they love taking that deep two, which, hey, if you're making it, great, but it's hard to make deep twos consistently. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, if you're thir- shooting 38% from three, that's really good. But if you're shooting 38% from mid-range, that's not good and it's not sustainable. Um, on a more positive note, uh, I wanted to talk about Malik Curry. Uh, past two games, he has been going nuclear. Uh, 19 against Iowa State, 27 against Texas. I believe that's a career high for him. Um, he has over 1,000 points now for his college career. Um, so very good career so far for Curry. And he's doing it a little bit differently now, too. Um, you know, you remember non-conference play. He was doing it all, attacking the rim, getting those driving layups. The past couple games, he's been shooting more mid-range. He's been hitting from there. But most importantly, he's been getting to the line and getting to the line a lot. Um, and that's been how he's gotten primarily a lot of his points. So, you know, he's made that adjustment. It's something that we've seen from him over the course of the season where he'll have little lulls in scoring and then he'll come out with a new trick and gets more points on the board. Yeah, 100%. You know, Keedy's, Keedy Johnson's injury, it's it's limited his playing time these past two games. He sat out Iowa State, and he only played eight minutes during Texas. But like you said, that allowed for this emergence of Malik Curry, who's getting a ton of time now. And he's scored 46 points over the last two games. And he's done it in a variety of ways. Like you just said, 18 of those points came from the free throw line, 12 from three, which we haven't seen from him really all at all this year, he only made three three-pointers the entire year before making four in his last two games. So he looks more confident out there, too. I don't know what it is. Just something about even watching him. He he looks um, like he knows he's going to make baskets where you never really saw that, that look before. And Mountaineer fans have known he's capable of this all year. He's shown little flashes here and there of being an elite player, but um, it's almost a shame that it's happening with only two games left now. Oh yeah. And, and kind of pertinent perspective, how good he has been um, over the past month, basically, you know, he's had five games where he's had box plus minus scores over 10. So the team scoring 10 more points with him on the floor against um, not, and that's out of nine games. But another thing that I found about him is that, um, in games where he has over five three free throws, he is absolutely incredible. Um, so he's at eight games in those instances, and in those eight games, he is averaging 15.9 points per game and a box plus minus average of 10.6. And that includes, you know, some high points of a plus 22 performance with 23 points, um, a 19-point performance where he was plus 18 Um and a 14-point performance where he was plus 12.9. So it just seems like if he gets to the free throw line, he gets fouled three times, he's going to have a pretty darn good game. And getting fouled three times when you drive as much as he does is pretty is pretty certain, unless the refs are bad. Um, so, I mean, it's just great to see him finishing out his college career like this. Um, you know, unfortunately, almost guaranteed not going to make the NCAA tournament, but hopefully there's some sort of postseason run that uh, he can keep the streak on. Yeah, for sure. And he just recently joined uh, Tash Sherman with scoring 1,000 career points. So 
that's awesome. Good for him. And like you said, like, you know, the, the big tournament doesn't seem like a big possibility, but maybe we can win a couple games in the big 12 and who knows, have a decent run in one of the lesser tournaments, the NIT or something. I know most fans, you know, couldn't care less, but uh, for how rough this season has been, if we can have a little late run in the NIT, you know what? I'll take it. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, even that run where we had, um, Darius Nichols and we won the NIT that year with him. Yeah, and Frank Young. That was that was fun. And I think that the was. next year kind of kicked off a nice tournament run for us. So it can lay the foundation for something special to happen next year too. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I mean, I was in college then and I still remember that. It was fun to just watch that run because like you said, it, it can be a building block. It It's all about the attitude of the program. And I'm much rather end the year on that note than the, the sour taste that's in our mouth right now. For sure. Um, one more thing I wanted to touch on um, before we jump to uh, the last player we're going to talk about is Jalen Bridges. Um, he hasn't played particularly well the past couple games, but what I found most interesting is that he has only played about 37 minutes the past two games. I believe he played 23 minutes two games ago or 24 minutes and then 13 minutes last game. Um, I know he had a little bit of foul trouble in those two games, but the fact that his minutes are cut by that much kind of makes me wonder what's going on. Um, And just for context, the previous 10 games that he played in before these past two, he was averaging 30 minutes a night. So seeing his minutes cut by that much is kind of alarming to me. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know if he was in the doghouse or what, but it, it seemed like he didn't play at all in the second half of the last game, or he barely played. I didn't really pay that close attention to know for sure, but it seemed like he barely even saw the court in the second half. So, like you did mention, he was in foul trouble, but you would think he would have got more than 13 minutes. So, I don't know if it was because our offense was doing okay and and Coach Hugs didn't want to mess with that, or, you know, I don't want to, you know, just make up rumors, but I don't know if he was in the doghouse for something, but it was very odd because it's a player that has seen, you know, a lot of minutes the entire year. And then all of a sudden he's on the bench. Yeah. And maybe it's just the, I guess the cynic in me where, um, or the nihilist in me, I guess would be a better term where, you know, just how bad the season's gone. Um, how I, it seems like the fans have been so critical of Jalen at times, at least from what he said on social media and, you know, me maybe getting a little bit too deep into Twitter, reading through his dad's tweets. It just kind of seems like there's a lot of negative energy around Jalen right now. And um, that worries me because I think he, we've said it in last episode, we think he's the best building block we have on the team right now, uh, long-term. And with the transfer portal the way it is, with, you know, the money that's kind of floating around in college athletics anymore, who knows what could happen. And that that worries me a little bit. It definitely worries me seeing the comments that you were just talking about. And, um, you know, I hope we don't lose him because although he seems to be missing that killer instinct this year, he is only a sophomore. And maybe with all these seniors leaving, maybe next year he comes in, feels like, you know, the team's on his shoulders, kind of how Taz felt this year. Maybe he will get that killer instinct because he's got all the skills. He's got everything. He just has to put it in motion and you know some players that takes longer than others so uh, yeah I'm really hoping he doesn't leave because that's really going to put us behind the eight ball starting next year oh yeah (laughs) yeah so yeah there's a couple guys I wanted to 
talk about before we got into Seth Wilson. First off, Isaiah Cottrell, another player who seems to be finding his game late in the season. Um, he, he has 21 points in the last three games, and he's putting up quality shots is what I like about those points. He's shooting 70% and making um, you know even a couple three-pointers for a big guy. That's awesome. So not only is he scoring, but his overall game just seems to be improving his passing, his rebounding. Much like Malik Curry, you know, Isaiah just looks more confident out there. I, I feel like he's finally comfortable in this offense. So hopefully he takes that momentum into next season. And just like Curry, hopefully he has a strong finish here these last couple of games. Yeah, definitely. And, I, you know, I've been really, like, happy with how he's played defensively. I know he's kind of streaky on that end, but he's played better. And he's rebounding better the past couple of games, which was mm-hmm. kind of my big kind of red flag against him because despite some of the big games he had previously over the past month or so, uh, he was still only grabbing one or two boards, but seeing him get up there higher in number little by little is really encouraging because he's going to need to be, you know, the guy next year who pulls down at least six boards a game. I mean, even if the Konku comes in and is able to grab eight, um, which might be asking a lot for a redshirt freshman, um, you still need someone out there who can grab a handful more, especially when you're losing guys like Gabe. Yeah, I'm, I'm 100% with you. And yeah, he is improving on it. Um, and like I said, even some nice passes out of the post, which you love to see from a big guy. Derek Culver always seemed to to have that skill too, to um, you know find an open guy when he's getting double covered. So he's still young, much like Jalen. So hopefully he comes in next year with a lot of experience and a lot of confidence. I feel like that's the biggest thing for some of these guys. They definitely have the skills. They just, they're lacking confidence is what I see at least. Yeah, I think that's safe to say. And I think, you know, with Cottrell losing that basically his entire freshman season with that injury and then losing a lot of the offseason definitely doesn't help with that. But um, it seems like he's kind of getting some traction now. Um, I hope he kind of sees the success that he's having and applies it to the offseason and really kind of builds on what he has. Because physically, I think with his quickness, his size, his touch, uh, he could be one of the best players, potentially even in the country with that skill set. He just needs to put the work in. Yeah, 100%. Um, one last player's performance I want to highlight over these last two games is Gabe Osaboyan. You know, he has been a solid player all season, but his, his scoring contribution this past week has been outstanding, scoring 31 points in two games, including a season-high 19 points versus Iowa State, and uh, half of those points came from the free throw line. So you can tell he's been working on it because on the season, he's a 52% free throw shooter, but he shot nearly 89% from the line in those two games. So what do you think of Gabe scoring lately? Yeah, I think he's definitely someone who's put in a ton of work. I mean, you know how hard Gabe works at everything, and I believe it was Huggins who talked about him um, I forget when it was last fall talking about Gabe working on his shooting and things like that. We didn't see it earlier in the season, but I think over the past you know month or so, he's been really applying himself and he's a solid ball handler. He's a great passer. Um, you know, he's not someone I would want bringing the ball down the floor, but I still think he's probably the best passer on the team. Um, and now he's kind of taking that energy that he has, the emotion, the, the willpower, and he's driving to the hoop and trying to create offense when our offense needs it the most. 
And that's what a leader does. Uh, I really appreciate Gabe because that's not his game, and he'd probably tell you the same. But there are times where it's apparent to everyone watching that someone needs to do something offensively, and that's kind of where you see Gabe go and try. And that's sometimes all you need as an offense is someone to go out there and try because it opens things up. Um, so I'm not going to object anytime Gabe wants to kind of turn the switch and try to create on offense. I mean, I think he even hit a three um, mm-hmm. the other game and, you know, it went in. So, I mean, I, I'm fine with him doing whatever. Uh, I, I like his confidence. I know he works on everything. So if he wants to put up 15 shots in a game, that's fine because we need the offense and I'm willing to get it from anywhere. Yeah, hit his first three all year the other game. Um, and kind of like what we've been saying with the other guys, he just has, you know, the the most confidence of any player on the team. Like like you said, if if he thinks he's got to put the ball on the floor and drive to the rim, he does it. And he's been very aggressive taking the ball to the hoop. And it's putting the other team in foul trouble. So hopefully he continues this offensive production for the last two games because um, he really is the total package when he can – put some points up too oh for sure all right so uh let's talk about seth wilson a little bit yeah uh so seth wilson he's someone that we've talked about over the past few weeks to someone we would like to see get more minutes and still it seems like he's having a hard time cracking that 13 minute mark um 20 minutes combined over the past two games um i think it was seven against iowa state and 12 or 13 against Texas. Um, And he was tremendous in that Texas game. He had the highest box plus minus on the team. He was playing great defense. He only scored four points, but still, you know, he had a few assists. He was kind of doing all the things that the team needed him to fill in at. Um, You know, he's a capable shooter. He's an aggressive driver. Um, He's a willing passer. He's doing all these things that the team is struggling at currently. And it just kind of scratch. It makes me scratch my head constantly to see him be on a minutes restriction when he's a freshman who hasn't played all year, he's been practicing and doing all the things Huggins wants him to do in practice. And yet it seems like there's a ceiling to how much he's willing to be played when in my opinion, he's young. He has the legs. He hasn't played all season. There's no reason why he couldn't play at least 20, 25 minutes a night when needed. Yeah. I'm with you. I mean, when he's out there, it, I don't think he puts the team at a disadvantage. I mean, we talked about last podcast how maybe Hugs isn't messing with the lineups because we are in these games late. And, you know, he wants to put the guys on the court who give him the best chance to win. I totally understand that. But, um, you know, Seth is young, and I don't think he's a guy who puts you at a disadvantage. I, I, you know, he, he hasn't shown me that yet, at least. So, I mean, we did just talk about how Malik's increased minutes has helped him a lot. So maybe he's just having trouble cracking the lineup. But like you said, it just seems like he is on a a uh, minute count restriction because they are, you know, giving him just about 13 every game. And what kills me the most is, yeah, he's only getting four points, but typically he'll get like back-to-back buckets and then that's when they pull him. Like, why would you pull him then? Why wouldn't you leave him out there a little bit longer and see if maybe he can heat up and really get a, a streak going? But um I don't know. They, they're. It seems like they're very strict with those minutes because um, it. Seth isn't the only one who it seems like they pull out right after they score a bucket, and that drives me nuts. If a player just scored a bucket, you know, leave him out there for at least a couple more minutes and see if see if he's getting into a groove. Oh yeah, definitely. And I, I think that's where 
you know, I'm a bit, we're both big Kobe Johnson fans. And, you know, I can understand why maybe you can't play him as much with some of the other people because he seems like he, he's just someone who kind of needs the ball in his hands. That's how he played in high school. He was the, you know, all time leading scorer in his high school. Um, he knows how to put the ball in the bucket, he knows how to handle the ball. That's kind of his role. Where with Seth, I can kind of see him being, you know, an undersized wing. You know, he's only 6'2, 6'3, or whatever, but he can play anywhere just because of how big he is, how strong he is, how aggressive he is, you know. Is so he can play within whatever system you want him out there with Curry and Sean and Taz. I think he could fit there because he'll go down underneath the basket and bang. I mean, he'll do whatever it takes. And I think. You know, that's kind of what's being lost is, yeah, maybe Huggins doesn't want to have four guys on the court who are 6'3 and shorter, but if he's one of your top five or six best players, you got to play him. Um, and just kind of scratches my head that, you know, there, there are still times when we need offense or we need better defense or we need something, and some of these other players just aren't getting the minutes. And, you know, that that's another thing that kind of confused me is, you know, several games ago, Huggins was talking about, you know, I'm not sure if I can win with these guys. I'm not sure if these guys are going to um, able to win. I don't know if they're working hard enough. I'm looking down at the end of the bench and seeing these freshmen, and I think they're earning minutes. And that was, what, four or five games ago now. And we're still – we're seeing Kobe Johnson's minutes go down. We've seen Jamel King for a total of, I think, one minute. Um, Seth Wilson for a top 13 minutes a night in a Konkwu whose red shirt is burnt, isn't seeing the court at all. Um, so it's just kind of baffling. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe Bob Huggins is outsmarting all of us. Maybe he's just saying this to light a fire under those seniors. I don't know, because he does seem to say something similar after every game, but you see the same guys out there for the same amount of minutes, no matter what. So, um, you know, maybe we're reading too much into it, but um yeah, if he's playing mind, mind games, it's definitely working on me because um, every game I'm thinking, all right, we're going to see some young guys get a lot of minutes tonight. And, you know, every game we don't. But another thing I like about Seth Wilson is he gets it to the rim, which we just talked about. Like, you know, we need guys on the team who are going to get the ball close to the bucket and not just hang around the three-point line. And he brings that to the table. So, I mean, I don't know. He just checks all the boxes for me that, um, even if you only gave them 18 instead of 13, I would, I would be happy with that. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, him kind of in that Jack of all trades role, kind of filling in where you need him, like a mini Gabe. I think he could do that. Um, he's a better ball handler, obviously. Uh, he's a good passer and he's aggressive getting to the rim, you know, and even someone like King who, um, we still haven't seen much of, but again, you know, he's supposed to be a knockdown shooter. And at times when we need offense, it, it just doesn't make sense to, to kind of keep him on the bench when you need scoring. I mean, maybe he's not the greatest defender, but the past two games have kind of shown that we're trading some of this defense for more offense. And if that's the case, if you're going into a shooting slump, if the offense isn't clicking, what does it hurt to give someone two or three minutes here and there? Give them six minutes a night, three minutes in the first, three minutes in the you know second, see if he heats up. I mean... Uh, a lot of comparisons we've got with him is Lamont West is what we've heard. And Lamont West was the ultimate kind of hot or cold guy. There'd be games where he went, what, like six of seven for three going off for 20 some points. And there'd be other games where he was just complete nothing. And, uh, you know, it wouldn't hurt to have that type of player right now, especially if you're just 
throwing him in there to see if he can get hot. Yeah, I'm with you. And I was the ultimate sucker for Lamont West. He was one of my favorites when he was on the team. But, man, you're right. He he would just go off one game, and then you it, it wasn't even like he was on the court for the next two or three games. But, um, yeah, I mean, you're right. I, I wouldn't mind seeing him put those guys out there when we have those long stretches in the second half with no points. Just throw someone else out there who's hungry and maybe looking to put some shots up. Who knows? Um, before we move on to the preview though, I just, I just want to give a shout out to our fans. You know, this has been a tough season for the Mountaineer fans, but once again, they showed up on Saturday and sold out the Coliseum. So it just shows how loyal this fan base is because it was a rough football season. It's been a rough basketball season, but the Mountaineer faithful were still in the stands cheering on their team. Yeah. I mean, it's been great. Um, you know, I'm hoping that we, we have one more home game against TCU, and I'm really hoping the fans can show out on that one, especially if it's a game that we need to close out with a win. Obviously, it would be nice to do either way, but if we lose against Oklahoma, um, you know, the best way to end some of these seniors' careers is to win with the stadium full. Um, so keep it up. Uh, I'm really happy that we're still coming out for games. I know it's easier on the weekend than during a weeknight, but uh, TCU is on a Saturday, so let's see everyone out there. No, 100%. And I'm sure they'll show up because, I mean, think of some of the seniors that, you know, that we're going to be saying goodbye to, although this season has been, it's been pretty bad, but, um, you know, some good memories with Taz Sherman, Sean McNeil, Gabe out there. So I'm sure our fans are going to show up for their, their last home game. So um, let's get into the preview. West Virginia has two regular season games remaining. They have Oklahoma on Tuesday and TCU at home on Saturday. These are two teams that West Virginia has already lost to by 10 points in both games. Oklahoma is 1-4 in, in their last five games, and TCU has to play Kansas twice this week before coming into Morgantown on Saturday. So, what, I don't know. Do you like West Virginia's odds in these rematch? Um, I don't really like it in Oklahoma. I, I like TCU a little bit more just because it's at home. Um, and, and these were both games where our offense just kind of disappeared in the second half. I mean, with TCU, we were right in there at the, at the half, and then we scored 25 points in the second half compared to, I think it was 41 or 42 in the first half. Um, against Oklahoma, you know, it was close at halftime, and then, we just let them get hot and they kind of pulled away there late. Um, and we hung around and battled a little bit, but you know, it kind of seems like, you know, when we previewed the Oklahoma game, Oklahoma was a team that we matched up well against Oklahoma turned the ball over a lot. Oklahoma was a bad three point shooting team and kind of all those things, the opposite happened. WVU turned the ball over a ton. Uh, Oklahoma found some guys who could hit some threes and it kind of completely changed the tide of things. Um, I think we can win against Oklahoma. I think they're the type of team that we can beat. But again, you know, if our defense isn't going to step up and if our offense is going to be streaky, I just don't like our odds there. Yeah, I'm with you. And, um, you know, I don't know how I feel because this team, it's just, they're so up and down on offense and defense. I mean, no one expected the these offensive outbursts these last two games. So, I just hope it keeps rolling because honestly, I don't think our defense has been very good in the the past month, really. I mean, our defense has been struggling um, in Big 12 play 
for most of the game. So if anything, I just want to see us putting up points because at least that gives us a chance to stay in the game and make the game close. And as long as we don't go on a terrible cold streak late in the second half, um, we definitely have a chance to win both of these games, but we'll see. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, the ultimate best scenario would be winning these two games. That would put us at 16 wins and then winning two games in the tournament. That would make us a bubble team in the NCAA tournament, I think. 18 wins. Um, I know it's a long shot. You have to play some really, really tough opponents in that second round game of uh, Big 12 play. But, I mean, that's really our only saving grace of making the tournament. And I know it's really, really, really unlikely. But I wouldn't mind being a 10 seed playing in that play-in game, um, even if it means that we lose. No, definitely not. And just, just give us a chance. That's how I always feel. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. That's all I got for basketball. You got anything else? Nope. That's where I'm done. That's where my list ends too. All right. We're going to talk a little football guys. First off, we're going to talk about Daryl Porter Jr. He announced that he will be transferring to the Miami Hurricanes. I'm sure there are a lot of factors that were in play here. Daryl is from that area. Um, Jamila Dye is his former coach at West Virginia, and he recently became Miami's secondary coach. Plus, there's no denying that the NIL deals at Miami are probably bigger than the ones Daryl could get here at West Virginia, unfortunately, but that's just the truth. And um, so what are your thoughts on his decision? I think it makes sense. I mean, you know, there were rumors circulating before about Florida State, um, potentially about some tampering, obviously. Um, Nothing really happened of that. So who knows if that was true or false, but I think it makes sense that he's going to Miami with a die. Cause that's who he's familiar with. We saw that happen with um, Tyke Smith too. When he transferred, he went to Georgia with Jamila die. And that's, I think we've talked about it before where, you know, not having a die, letting him go. Um, what was uh, really hurt the program, I think in, in some way, shape or form, just because he had such a great bond with his players. He's obviously a great coach. If he keeps on getting these jobs at big time universities, and you know, recruiting wise, he knows how to get these talented guys. And then obviously to top it all off, he's a WVU guy. You know, he loves the university. Um, so it would have been great to have him around because we would still have some of these players. But, you know, I completely understand you know, the reason why some of these DBs are transferring. I mean, it's hard to turn down guaranteed NIL money. And it's hard to, you know, sometimes, you know, adapt away from the coach that recruited you and started developing you. So. I don't hold anything wrong against Porter. I think he did what was best for him. Um, it does hurt me as a WVU fan, though, because I was a big Daryl Porter fan. Yeah, I think you put it perfectly. I don't really hold it against them, but it does hurt. <laughs> it does hurt <laughs> seeing a, a good young player. I mean, it wasn't like he was coming in to be a senior. He had a couple years left of solid play, and he just bolts like that. But, um, I mean, like we just talked about, uh, it checked a lot of boxes. It wasn't just one thing. It seems like a lot of people on social media just want to say, well, it's just a die stealing our players. Um, but uh, that, that that's an easy out just to blame it on that. Like we said, he's from that area. He gets to play with a die and, you know, the money is bigger there. So, I mean, check, check, check. Y- you understand why he went. So don't hold it against him, but uh, 
it sucks. I don't know how else to put it. Yeah. As a WVU fan, it, it hurts. So um, that's going to take us into the next one. Josh Chandler Semedo recently announced he has entered the transfer portal. Um, pretty disappointing news for West Virginia fans. Josh was the leading tackler on the team last year. And Josh starting at middle linebacker was one last position the coaches had to fill going into next season. But now, you know, we're going to have to find some young guy to put in the, the middle linebacker spot. So it's just one more thing um, the coaching staff has to worry about now. So what are your thoughts on Chandler Smato's decision? See, that one really hurts. Um, you know, I feel like he really improved towards the end of the year. I know he was a senior and I think he actually walked on senior day. Um, but then January 1st, 2022, he announced he was coming back. And that made me feel a lot of relief because. We've lost a lot of linebackers over the past, you know, six months or so. Um, and there's really not a lot of depth there. I know we have someone like a Deshaun Stevens, which I'm not sure what his eligibility is going to be. And he didn't really play much. You have Lance Dixon, who mostly played on the outside. I don't know if he can move to the middle. Um, and middle linebacker is arguably the most important piece of the defense. You need someone out there roaming the field and making the tackles and cleaning up. Um, and, Josh Chandler Semedo did a great job of that. So um, I think it's a huge loss because it leaves a giant hole in the defense and defense was something that I felt pretty solid about next year, but losing Porter and Semedo, um, even though we're bringing stills back and uh, Mesador, you know, I, I really don't know how it's going to look, especially with a lot of question marks on offense, unless the coaches do some really great development over the summer or, bring in some transfers this could be a really really bad season coming up yeah i'm with you um you know just about a month ago we were just worried about you know who was going to step up and take over some of the safety spots and now we just have all these holes to fill it seemed like our defense was going to be so stacked next year and that was going to help all these young exciting players we have coming in on offense but now um you know a lot of question marks on both sides of the ball it's it, it's unfortunate and like you said no linebacker so important that's like the quarterback of your defense setting everything up um so that's rough but i i think it's obvious someone is in these players ears because you have a guy like chandler Semedo who put out a message like you said just a month ago and he he clearly sounds like he's excited to come back to West Virginia and play his final season. And then out of nowhere, he announces he's, he's transferring. So people are offering these players deals. They just can't pass up and they're young. You, you can't really blame them, but it just, I don't know why it just feels dirty. It feels like it's not right somehow. So WVU isn't competing in NIL, um, wise with schools like Miami or SEC schools it's just kind of sad because it's turning West Virginia into a stepping stone I feel like you know once players have a good season they just bolt and go somewhere where they can make big money and it's it's hard to consistently win when the coaching staff is always trying to replace these important players so in my opinion something needs to change I don't know if the university or donors or something needs to step up because I'm afraid, I don't think it'll hurt us, you know, next year or the year after. But down the road, this could really hurt attendance, viewership. If all these middle-of-the-pack schools are just going to turn into stepping stones, I mean, what do you have to look forward to if, you know, in the middle of the season you see this 
stud sophomore playing and then in the back of your mind you're just thinking well he's gonna leave anyways so what is there to be excited about yeah and even um there's an article that brad posted on the voice of motown page where he interviewed an anonymous player and we don't have any information on who this might be so we can't share that but you know he was even quoted as saying this player that you know the coaches on the coaching staff work their asses off he said maybe he can't speak to why some of these players are transferring he is a transfer himself he said, maybe it's NIL deals. In my opinion, there needs to be a funding system. Like Toothman Ford, there are other businesses just as big as them that could be doing the same thing. It's hard to compete with SEC money, but in the new college football, the players that can get paid and help their families are going to do that. And I think that's a big piece of it. You know, um, We don't hear about these NIL deals a lot from West Virginia companies, and there's really no excuse for it. You know, I, I have no problem coming out and, you know, pleading with some of these companies because it's kind of ridiculous when you what the West Virginia Mountaineers are the professional team of the state of West Virginia basketball and football they are the NFL and NBA teams of our state and there's no reason why West Banco United Bank um the any of the coal mines things companies like that or even panhandle cleaning and restoration um couldn't couldn't give some of these players some money for sponsorship deals because that's like having you know it's like the Steelers um, and Pittsburgh having an ad with Ben Roethlisberger on it. If you have the quarterback of West Virginia Mountaineers on it, everyone's going to know that. And instead, you know, we still have a lot of these companies like Little General Stores and Panhandle Cleaning and Restoration just giving these marketing deals to coaches who are, are already making millions of dollars. Um, at some point, the mindset needs to change and say, yeah, you know, it's nice to have this guy who's going to be around for the next five to ten years on my billboard, but what if I help build up the university so that these coach that I was putting on the billboard before is able to keep his job because he has players. Um, I, I think it's a lot of the old fashioned way of the West Virginia based businesses thinking, you know, you go for the coach, not the players, you do things this way, not that way. But with the way that college football is evolving and changing so rapidly, I think that's going to force the business and the people who have the money in the state of West Virginia to kind of have to rethink things quickly or else it's going to hurt the university. Yeah. Yeah. The times are changing for sure. And it's hard to tell businesses what to do with their money. But like you said, um, you know, it seems like it would be a good business deal because I'm sure people want to give these guys their business, like the, the, um, the car dealership who keeps giving out deals to these students. Um, to be fair to Little General, I have seen commercials with players on it. Now, I don't know if those are small deals, little deals. Um, but yeah, these businesses need to step up because it's rapidly changing. And it's like I said, I hate to say it, but it's going to just make our sports programs, you know, not as significant as they are right now. And it feels like it's happening at a very quick place pace, but, um, I hope the NCAA starts putting something in because it seems like the tampering is wrong. Like, I, I don't understand how it's, it's legal for, <laughs> for them to be poaching players the way they are. Oh, yeah, I agree. I mean, there has to be some sort of policing mechanism in place. And the NCA makes enough money that they should be able to have people who monitor at least by conference or even by school. I mean, there's 130 some uh, FBS schools. So hiring 130 people just to kind of monitor communications, make people use, you know, NCA approved devices to communicate with recruits. And if you find it out there and that's some refraction, something like that um, sh should work. But the NCA is so far behind because they never really wanted to pay players. You know, this was something that was made legal 
on the federal level with the NIL and the NCA really didn't have anything to do. They just, their hands were tied. They had to let it happen. Um, so, you know, the NCA just kind of needs to adapt and do more investigating. You know, I, I know a lot of the recruiting violations historically have been found during self-reporting and that's not going to work here. It's just, you, you can't police that because why would someone report themselves whenever they're just handing out $50,000 in cash? Yeah. Yeah. Who the heck would turn themselves in? That's the dumbest, <laughs> that's the dumbest procedure I've ever heard of. Um, but yeah. And, and as always, before we wrap this up, we just encourage everyone don't message these players. I, I've already seen people messaging like Josh Chandler, tomato and stuff like that. Not unless you're giving them words of encouragement. Just, just be quiet. I mean, I don't understand that. That doesn't make anyone look good and you're not going to change the player's mind by saying hateful things towards them. So just root for the players who are here. Um, even just talking about football, I'm getting excited for next season already. Um, so I don't know, just keep that in the back of your mind. Just if you have something negative to say to these guys who are leaving, you're probably just better off not saying anything. Yeah. Agree. Yeah. But we've said that a million times. It'll never stop, I'm sure. <laughs> so moving on. So now we are going to our top 50 list. We have rankings 30 to 26 for the top 50 football players at West Virginia of the 21st century. Coming in at number 30, we have Eric Wicks. Eric Wicks played safety at West Virginia from 2004 to 2007, and he was an absolute playmaker. Eric totaled eight interceptions in his career for six fumbles, 11 sacks, and scored three touchdowns while playing defense. As a backup his sophomore year, he earned second team All-Big East and then first team All-Big East the following year as a starter. So, Playmaking safeties are hard to come by, and that's why Eric Wicks cracks our top 50 list. Oh, for sure. And he was super versatile, too. He was a guy who played strong safety, free safety, and it kind of had to be that way because that sophomore year where he was a backup, he was backing up Mike Lorello and Jamila Dye. I mean, two of the best safeties, you know, WVU's had. Um, and he f he was so good that he found playing time there. Um so, you know, absolute stud. His best season was in 2006, which was his junior year. Um, it was kind of tough to pick between some of the seasons because they were so close. But uh, 2006, he had 73 tackles, 11 tackles for a loss as a safety, three interceptions, and one forced fumble. Um, and, you know, he was really highly regarded, especially because of that junior season going into his senior year. He was actually named to a preseason second team All-American list in 2007 going into his senior year preseason first team all big east in 2007 um and he was actually ranked as i believe those number seven safety in the country going into that senior season um his senior season was still good but um you know apparently the nfl scouts didn't really like what they saw as he wasn't drafted um he did go as an undrafted free agency in 2008 to seattle um but he ended up not playing due to injury um he severely injured his knee two days before the preseason opener and that was the end of his career. Yeah. And, you know, he played on some of the most successful Mountaineer teams of all time. And uh, in his final collegiate game, the Mountaineers beat Oklahoma in the Fiesta Bowl. So that era will always hold a special place in my heart. And that's why you guys are seeing so many of those players from that era popping up on our list, because it just reminds us of good times of West Virginia football. 
Oh yeah. And that's a, those teams had a lot of talent too. I mean, um, just that 2017, the couple years before that and after that, I mean, that was kind of the golden age. Um, and then kind of like the early Dana years with, with Gino and crew who will show up later in the lists. Um, I do have a noteworthy moment for Eric Wicks. Um, in 2005, I believe it was, um, it was the overtime game against Louisville, um, where he sacked or didn't sack. He tackled Louisville quarterback, Brian Brom on his two point conversion attempt in the third overtime to seal the victory for the Mountaineers. Um, obviously he probably had some more flashy plays than that, but that was one of the best Mountaineer games of all time. And he was the one who put the cap on it. Yeah, 100%. That is my favorite game of all time that I've been at. We've been going to the Mountaineer game since 2001, and that one I will never forget because I remember seeing so many people leave the stadium when we were down 17 uh, in the fourth quarter, and and we stuck around, and that was probably the most exciting game I've ever got to witness live. Oh, yeah. I mean... Brom, the quarterback, is ready. Here comes the try for two. He has the snap. He drops. He looks. Pressure collapses. He's running, and he will be stopped short. They've tackled him. The ball game is over. The West Virginia University Mountaineers have rallied to defeat the Louisville Cardinals in one of the greatest games in West Virginia football history. The Mountaineers prevail 46-44. to It is a great night to be a Mountaineer wherever you may be. It's over in Morgantown. They've come back from 24 to 7 down to win it 46 to 44 they went with the empty set Brian Brom the quarterback dropped nowhere to throw it he started to run he was hit at the five yard line he went down to the three and Eric Wicks brought him down and the Mountaineers have knocked off the 19th rated Cardinals 46 to 44 oh my gracious sakes alive well I don't want to talk too much about it when we have some big names and big performances coming up later. So make sure you tune in for those episodes. (laughs) 100%. All right. Coming in at 29, we're getting the offensive lineman some love. Colton McKivitz. Colton played left and right tackle for the Mountaineers from 2015 to 2019. He was a talented lineman who could play on either side and started in 47 career games. It's rare to find a lineman who can give you four solid years as a starter, but Colton did just that, earning all Big 12 Conference first team and co-offensive lineman of the year in 2019. So big shout out to Colton McKivitz, who now makes a living in the NFL on Sundays. Oh, yeah. And uh, interestingly enough, his door was open due to uh, an injury by Yandi Kajust, who was in our previous episode, um, which got Colton in as a redshirt freshman starting at left tackle. Um, and that kind of shoehorned him in um, at the right tackle spot. Um, and he was so good his senior year, the year he won his co-offensive lineman of the year award. He ranked second in the Big 12 for highest pass blocking grade, fourth in the Big 12 for highest run blocking grade and sixth in the Big 12 for fewest sacks given up with one sack allowed. Um, And that was him with him starting at left tackle after starting at right tackle for two years, his sophomore and junior year. Um, He is an All-American almost every single year that he was in college. First team freshman, uh, or all freshman third team in 2016. Um, First team, or second team All-American in 2019. First team All-Big 12. 
2019. Um, so yeah, he was certainly got a ton of accolades during his years and, um, fifth round draft pick by the 40, 49ers. He has started four starts in the past two years. And, uh, one interesting note that, um, you know, for, for me and Tyler is that he's actually from Belmont, Ohio and went to union local. So he is a local boy. He's close to where we live. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he was just a, a great four-year starter. I feel like we, we kind of took for granted some of these great linemen WVU has had these past 20 years. Um, because, you know, in recent years, other than Zach Frazier, uh, we've, we've, we're starting to see how important a solid offensive line can really make or break an offense. So Colton gave West Virginia four great years. Shout out to him. Yeah. And it's hard to find four year starters at the offensive line position. It's yeah. You're not yeah. going to see very many Colton McKivitts and Yandy Kajus walk in the door anytime soon. I hope we do, but. I'll hold my breath. <laughs> yeah, they're hard to come by. All right, coming in at number 28, Dakeel Shorts. Dakeel Shorts played wide receiver at West Virginia from 2013 to 2016. And Dakeel was perhaps the best third down wide receiver West Virginia has had in the past 10 years, at least. Um, you know, during his time at WVU, he pulled in 177 catches, fifth best all time at West Virginia over 2,200 receiving yards, seventh best all time, and 14 touchdowns. Um, not only was Shorts a reliable target, but he was a very underrated blocker, especially for his size. There were several times running backs, such as Wendell Smallwood, would turn a five-yard play into 10 or 12 yards just because of the effort um, that Dekeel showed in the run-blocking game. So, he was a solid contributor all four years. I mean, it wasn't like he was heavy those junior and senior years. He really contributed every single year. So that's why he cracks our top 50 list. Oh, yeah, for sure. And if you look at his numbers, I mean, they don't really pop off the page compared to some of the all-time greats. But, you know, this ranking is a reflection of his all-around game and his longevity. You know, he really kind of started for four years. He led the team in receptions as a freshman. Um, then he again led the team in receptions his junior and senior year, um, finished second on the team in receiving yards his junior year, second on the team in receiving yards his senior year, and third on the team in receiving yards his freshman year. Um, his sophomore year was a little bit of a down year, but you know, like you said, he was a great kind of security blanket. I mean, WVU doesn't use tight ends, so he was, you know, that sturdy kind of reliable target down the middle that quarterbacks could rely on. Um, also kind of stacking up against him, similar to Jock Sanders, who we ranked earlier, is that the three of the four years that he played in were very run heavy. Um, his freshman or his uh, senior, junior and senior year, I believe it was, they ran almost 60% of the time and he was still putting up good numbers. That was the years with uh, Wendell Smallwood and um, Jordan Crawford. Um, so, you know the Skylar Howard years and he put up numbers with him and he was Skylar Howard's kind of guy those years where you had Shelton Gibson, who was the stretch the field guy to shorts was the intermediate um, catch the ball, go down guy. And he did a great job of it. Yeah. 100%. I mean, like you said, his best year was under 900 yards. So it wasn't like he had one year that just his stats jumped off the page, but 
Um, you know, I almost say that as a compliment. It just shows how consistently good he was all four years. Zekiel never had a record-setting season, just reliable. And like we said, a great third-down target for Skylar Howard during his time at WVU. Oh, for sure. And um, right now, uh, he didn't end up playing in the NFL. He did uh, one year on the practice squad for Buffalo, and then he got into coaching. He is now the wide receivers coach at Houston. Um, I do have a noteworthy moment for him. Um, so it was the toe tap catch in the back of the end zone against Baylor. Reminded me a lot of the Bryce Ford Wheaton catch um, where you can barely see those toes tap, but he gets them in. And uh, that was a great year WVU had too. I think that was our 10 win season. So um, Dekeel, very big part of that as well. Yeah, 100%. That was a fourth down play too. Yeah. So that, was, that was clutch, which he was his whole career. On fourth and three, they're going for it. Howard to the end zone, the back. Does he come down? Touchdown! Shorts able to get his foot down. They'll look at it. They do say touchdown. All right, coming in at number 27, Ryan Stanchek. Ryan played guard and tackle at West Virginia from 2005 to 2008. During his time here, he blocked for some of the most prolific Mountaineer players, such as Pat White, Steve Slayton, and Noel Devine. Their success all starts up front with solid offensive linemen, such as Ryan Stanchek. He was first team, all Big East, and earned a second team, all American, his senior year. So big shout out to Ryan Stanchek. Oh, yeah, he was incredible um finished his career with 48 consecutive starts mr reliable there um and you you alluded to the running game you know definitely one of the best run blockers probably in west virginia history uh during his four years on the offensive line wvu's rushing ranked nationally fourth second third and 15th um i know you we had a lot of talent in the backfield those four years but still you need to have someone making the holes and ryan was a big piece of that um, to add on to his accolades, uh, he was a first-team freshman All-American, second-team All-Big East his sophomore year, first-team All-American his junior year, first-team All-Big East his uh, junior year, second-team All-American his senior year, and first-team All-Big East his senior year as well. Um, surprisingly to me, despite how good he was in college and all those All-American honors, he didn't get drafted. He ended up signing as an undrafted free agent by the Atlanta Falcons um, and really nothing came of it. He did play a year of arena football and then he ended up deciding that he wanted to be a coach and that's what he's doing now. Yeah. Yeah. He's currently the co-offensive coordinator and offensive line coach at Austin PV. So he was just hired in January just recently. So we wish him all the best at his new school. Oh, for sure. And the one interesting thing that uh, I found about him too, and maybe this is a, uh, something that could bump him up future in the list is um, as an offensive coordinator at Alcorn State, which he was at uh, several years ago, um, he was offensive coordinator for one year. And during that year, Alcorn State won the SWAC. I think that's how you would say that <laughs> conference championship and their offense led the conference in total yards. So he definitely has some skill there. And, um, you know, it definitely seems like he's trying to get back into that role. I know he did spend a year, at um, Southern Mississippi, I believe it was, as an offensive line coach trying to get into the FBS best ranks. But 
looks like he stepped back down to FCS. That way he can kind of get more opportunities and reps at that offensive coordinator position. And hopefully we can see him, you know, at another school FBS school one day. And if we're lucky enough, see him back at WVU. Yeah, that would be great. Um, he definitely has a good football mind, it seems like, because uh, we didn't even mention all the other schools he's coached at prior to these stops. So, um, yeah, maybe down the road he'd be a good fit. But um, regardless, great four years starting at line for us. So big shout out to him. Coming in at number 26, Rashid Marshall. Rashid Marshall played at West Virginia from 2001 to 2004. Rashid helped put Rich Rodriguez spread offense on the map and paved the way for West Virginia greats such as Pat White. He also brought back a winning culture to this great program. We had a couple down years there. Um, so I can't emphasize enough how important Rashid was to Morgantown. He's fifth all time at West Virginia with over 5,500 passing yards, sixth all time with 45 passing touchdowns and eighth all time with 24 rushing touchdowns. So he's just a very special player who I feel doesn't really get as much credit as he probably deserves. Oh, for sure. I mean, he, he's kind of like the, the, the prototype for that West Virginia quarterback during rich rods years. And like you said, he kind of broke through. Um, He was the second quarterback to start under rich rod. I think it was what Brad Lewis was the first and that really didn't fit what Rich Rod wanted to do. Um, but you kind of saw it with Rashid that first year under him where he ran for 13 rushing touchdowns, which was a lot back then for a quarterback, um, unless you played for like maybe Navy or Army or Air Force or something. Um, but, you know, he, he could throw too, and he had some good weapons to throw to, um, and he had a nice arm. Um, he could throw the ball all over the field, some nice pretty deep balls, and that contributed to his 5,000 yards uh, passing and 42 passing touchdowns um his best year was his senior year where he passed for over 1400 yards 60 60 percent completion and 16 touchdowns to only six picks that's also to go with 684 yards rushing on 5.3 yards per carry and four touchdowns um in that same season he won the big east offensive player of the year he was 2004 all big east and ended up getting drafted um, in the fifth round by the San Francisco 49ers. He actually switched to wide receiver um, to play in the senior bowl or whatever it was um, so that he could showcase his versatility. And that's ended up what got him selected by the 49ers. Um, He didn't really see much playing time there, but he did serve primarily as a kick and punt returner. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at his stats, they might not jump off the page compared to what offenses do nowadays. But you got to keep in mind the spread offense when Rashid Marshall played um, was something that was just starting to take over college football. And like we said, he kind of, you know, set the groundwork for Rich Rod and um, to bring in guys like Pat White to put up those explosive numbers that they did. So, Um, Like I said earlier, I just feel like he doesn't get quite as much credit as he probably deserves for really starting to win a lot of games at West Virginia and to put that offense into place because Rich Rod had a a rough first year and it it seemed like it was going to be rough again until Rashid kind of stepped up and took over that starting role and then everything just seemed to click for us and we had a, a good run there for a while. 
Um, and every time I think of Rasheed Marshall, I think of that Virginia Tech game on Thursday night in Morgantown where they beat number three ranks Virginia Tech. They won comfortably that night, 28 to seven because of a good play by Rashid. And I won't blow up your spot, so I'll let you take it over from there. Oh, yeah. So uh, WVU had the ball on their own uh, seven-yard line, I believe it was. Uh, 93-yard touchdown bomb to Travis Garvin. Um, they were already up. I believe it was 20-7 to seven at that time, or 13-7, I think it was. 14-7. Mm-hmm. And they ended up hitting that bomb to kind of put the nail in the coffin to tr- close that upset. I believe it was in the fourth quarter. And um, just absolutely crazy. You can you can almost see in the, the highlight the camera shaking from the way the crowd's just going crazy because, one, is Virginia Tech. Two, they were ranked number three in the country. And that play right there just kind of, you know, encapsulated everything that win meant to WVU fans. Go out of the end zone and he lobs the ball downfield for Garvin, makes the catch. He's at midfield. Travis Garvin running to the 40 of Tech on the sideline, the 25, the 20, the 15, the 10, the 5. End zone. Touchdown. Travis Garvin. I did have one more. Um, he also threw a really beautiful pass to Chris Henry. Um, in the end zone, uh, it's an overtime winner versus Maryland to win the game. So, um, you know, Chris Henry, one of the all-time greats, obviously, um, definitely gone too soon. But, you know, those two got to play together, and that that was a really fun tandem to watch. And we'll be hearing more from Chris on this list later on. Rasheed is ready. Here we go. Third down and four. Snap comes back. Rasheed wants to throw. He fires in the end. Oh, ball caught. Touchdown. West Virginia wins. West Virginia wins. Chris Henry got the touchdown pass from seven yards away. And the Mountaineers have defeated the Maryland Terrapins in overtime as Rasheed Marshall threw a rocket into the hands of Chris Henry. Yeah, 100%. I remember that game as well. That was a home game too. So, um, yeah, just a lot of fun, memorable games from that era. So, shout out to Rasheed Marshall. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, now he is doing color commentary, so you can hear him calling some WVU games. And he's good. I, I like when Rashid calls games. He's a smart guy. Um, you know, he does color, so he you know talks X's and O's and things like that. And you know, he has a good mind for it. Um, definitely one of the most exciting players to watch. I know, you know, being followed by Pat White is a tough gig to to you know follow, but uh, you know, he kind of got overshadowed by that but i still think it's important to realize because like you said his importance for this university and kind of the ter- corner we turned um with rich rod to rashid to pat um just can't be overstated yeah 100 percent um and that's it for us guys thank you very very much for listening as always we want to encourage you please leave a comment on any of our social media accounts tell us what you liked about the podcast what you didn't like is it too long should do you want more just let us know because we we want to improve we really do we're always trying to get better at this and um that's it for me you got anything else oh yeah just real quick you know um we're getting into the real juicy part of our top 50 list um top 25 coming up soon and you know Rashid is just kind of the tip of the iceberg there we're just getting better from there so if you want to kind of reminisce with us make sure to tune in uh, make sure you give us our comments and tell us your favorite story about some of these great mountaineers
Yeah, 100%. Thanks, guys. And uh, we will catch you guys next week. Bye, everyone.